Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, I think um, it's, it's probably necessary that we check a couple of things before we start. First of all, uh, we're recording this on Sunday. I take it you're not expecting any deliveries today? The Baroness is not having any skis delivered? There's no no organic bees on the way around for a walk so that Finley goes absolutely tonto? Like he did the other day again. Uh, I, I sincerely hope not. I've been uh, I've, I've been trying to practice on my uh, tinfoil FA Cup and uh, and blowing up my inflatable seagull uh, in in preparation for uh, taking on the, the mighty ha- ha- Harry the Haddock. Uh, yeah, yeah. As, as Grims Grims Grimsby. To be fair, that absolutely brilliant. They sold out in less than twelve hours. Five thousand tickets. Yeah, um, yeah. So I've got big, I've got big day out for them. I've got I'm, no doubt. You'll be cheering them on. I've got no doubt whatsoever that their fans will have a lovely, uh, a lovely, lovely trip down to the south coast, and I've got no doubt whatsoever that you'll hammer them uh, with an inflatable hammer or otherwise. Uh, and I'm just looking at things this morning. There's this terrible, terrible potential for you to get to the FA Cup final, Millwall to get to the Premier League through the playoffs, and us wheeling our geriatric new manager down. In, <laughs> my only hope is in all this that Matron says we can't talk to Roy Hodgson because if that happens, I think we might we might not be doing the pod for a few weeks, Kieran. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, you'll um, be fine. You'll be fine. Things, uh, things are getting a bit tetchy between Palace fans as well now, especially <laughs> all those Palace fans. So we need to get rid of Patrick Vieira and then go. Well, I didn't. I didn't mean to get. Rid- Roy Hudson back in. Well, you, be, be careful what you wish for. It's questions day, uh, Kieran. Well, the first question is, WTF is happening with the owners at my club? But we haven't got time for you to answer that. Um, <laughs> and we do have some news stories first. And the, the first one, Kieran, is that this is episode 350. 350. 350 <laughs> episodes of this. That's 350 hours. That's That's... That's about four months of podcasting, isn't it? Probably, I don't know. You're you're the one who does the numbers, um, <laughs> uh, which is, I think, congratulations to all of us, and especially to those listeners who've been with us right from the start. Who uh, I, I think we've developed a lovely relationship with, as well as all our new. I, I often worry, so you know, like those adverts that say offer doesn't apply to existing customers. I feel like yes. sometimes we have to keep our existing customers happy and not keep saying hello to the new one. So existing customers right from the start, thank you for being with us for so long. Um, our next news story, Kieran, um, and wow, I think we probably both cracked out the bubbly on this one. Uh, <laughs> obviously you on Gail's behalf, of course, and uh, your bubbly beetroot and egg white uh, vegetarian cocktail. But Gianni Infantino has had some good news, Kieran, hasn't he? Yes, fantastic. Uh, it just shows what an amazing job Gianni Fantino has done at uh, FIFA that he's been re-elected, unopposed to be <laughs> the president of the uh, president of FIFA. Um, uh, he is only allowed uh, three uh, three periods of uh, being being the president, but I'm sure things can be changed. Um, and uh, it, it, it may have coincided with him promising each of the 211 members more money um, if they voted for him. Uh, and I think, I think uh, any potential opponents have seen the way that the, the wind has, has blown. So uh, it took place um, in, in Rwanda. 
um, which I'm sure gave Sorella uh, Braverman a, a bit of a fanny flutter to see the good news coming <laughs> coming out from over there. Um, <laughs> and uh, he was uh, he was very much supported by the uh, Rwandan president Paul Kagame, who 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 actually could probably teach Jenny uh, one or two things about landslide victories and unopposed elections, but mm. but that's for another podcast, I suspect. Yes, um, yeah, go on. So, so uh, yeah, it was. It was it was textbook Infantino ranting at the press for questioning anything to do with his uh, his tenure. Um, FIFA has had a good period of time. Um, they announced the uh, the expansion of all the tournaments, but without consulting you know anybody apart from themselves. By the looks of it, certainly not the clubs and certainly not the players. But but what have they got to do with football? Um, and I mean, to be fair, one thing I'm, I think to give him some credit, the, the prize money for the, the Women's World Cup has been tripled. Yep. And, uh, he said it, it should be higher still, but he, he, he had a go at the broadcasters and he had a go at the commercial partners for that. Yep. He said nothing to do with us. Yeah. Um, I quite like the fact that he made a long rambling speech, uh, attacking those who criticized him for his long rambling speech <laughs> in the opening day of the World Cup. Um, and, and it's closing with the words, be kind. Be kind, because we're trying to be kind, be kind. I did um, talk sport yesterday to talk about, uh, you can imagine what I was talking about, Uh, and the producer, which they've never done before, is just said, look, uh, uh, we can tell by your messages in the WhatsApp group that you might be a little bit... A little bit antsy, so could we just make you know make sure you know that, that you're not going to say anything that might have our lawyers? And then no, no, fine. I said, you you know me, I'm experienced enough. I said there is one thing now. I was hoping to just mention at the end, Gianni Infantino's has been re-elected as FIFA president, and it's only cost him about 110 billion pounds uh, in terms of giving 200. And he went perhaps perhaps we'd just leave it at Palace. That's all right. <laughs> I, I mean, it's the lawyers, it's Saturday morning. We haven't got the best lawyers on. Leave it. Just leave it at Palace. <laughs> well, that's it. I, I have to say a big thank you to Charlie Baker and Max Rushton for realising halfway through my the ten minute uh, interview that they weren't going to get another question in. Uh, <laughs> basically, I could see them on Zoom just starting to do other stuff. Basically, made a cup of tea, got some invoices checked. Um, I don't know how to introduce this last news story, Kieran, because it it might take a few minutes. It, it's suddenly looking quite leery for mm. several clubs in the championship. We discussed just on the last pod, Kieran, the fact that the EFL were, as you say, rolling their sleeves up, putting their big person's pants on and, and getting stuck into uh, ne'er-do-wells and malefactors. And it, it, it seems that other clubs are going to be uh, suffering from that this weekend, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I, I spoke to an executive from uh, an EFL championship club probably about three or four weeks ago. Um, and I've, I've sort of yeah, been, yeah, me, irritatingly cheerful most of the time. Mm. Um, I was saying, yeah, you, you've done okay. We've, we've, we're still fine. And, and he just said, Kieran, um, you've got no idea expect the coming storm yeah and i, and I think, I think we, we mentioned that on the show and yeah. then um well over the course of the last week or two his his prophecy has, has started to to crystallize um so it it looks as if we could have three points deductions coming up pretty soon um reading um the efl have, have sort of put that out that slightly um 
okay, we've been very patient with you, but we're not prepared to be patient anymore, yeah. uh, comment on, on the website. Um, so it looks like Reading potentially could have a points deduction for non-compliance with the business plan. Um, Wigan's wages apparently still have not been paid. Um, and you know, this Sean Maloney, the manager, has effectively said that, well, Wigan had a deferred points deduction. It looks like that could crystallise. Um, there are there are stories circulating, and, and we can go no further than that. There are stories circulating that Huddersfield Town uh, potentially could go into administration. Uh, and just to give people a little bit of context here, um, I, I, many years ago there, there was there was a club uh, based in Yorkshire uh, owned by a guy called Mister Bates. And uh, Mr. Bates, I think it's fair to say, some people said he, he gamed the system uh, because mm. it used to be that you you got a points deduction um, in in the season in which you entered to administration. So uh, when Leeds United were were yeah knew that they couldn't stay up, uh, they were instantly effectively put into administration. They therefore took the fifteen point penalty in a season when they'd already gone down, mm. and it meant that they started in League One on zero points. So the EFL um, brought in a rule which says that if you go into administration after the fourth Thursday in March, which, which of course, we are now approaching, mm. um, if you go into administration after that date, um, the 15-point deduction will only apply um, if, you've, if you've not been relegated. Um, so if you are relegated, it rolls over to the start of your season in League One. So therefore, there is a case for saying that if you are in a poor position in the championship and you are close or almost guaranteed to being relegated, why not accelerate the uh, administration, bring it in before this right. season, take right. take your penalty now, go down. And, and that, that, you know, Huddersfield are in a pretty bad position. And then, of course, they go and win yesterday at Millwall. So now they've got a little bit more hope. So, so we'll have to wait and see. But the, the issue at Huddersfield is um, the the former owner, Dean Hoyle, uh, sold uh, Huddersfield to a guy called uh, Paul Hodgkinson. Paul Hodgkinson's other businesses went bust. And we've said this on many occasions, that clubs who are reliant on owners are reliant on the owner's personal circumstances not deteriorating. Well, Paul Hodgkinson's personal circumstances did deteriorate. Uh, Dean Hoyle came back. Uh, he bought 25% of the club back, uh, but it uh, and he's effectively been funding the club. But Dean Hoyle's got, got health concerns, and you know, you, you, we wish him all the best. Uh, but I think his priorities are, are more focused towards uh, you know, trying to deal with, with his health issues. Um, Therefore, uh, there is there is chalk circulating that Huddersfield potentially could go in for what is referred as a pre-pack administration, and this is where you are in administration for approximately one minute. Oh, um, and, and and the club is then sold to new owners. But the good thing from the new owners' point of view is that you only acquire the assets of the football club; all of the liabilities stay with the old company. So, so you get that benefit. Right. Um, so, it, it's uh, it has some merits, although again, you know, to, to give credit to to the EFL, um, that they they would still insist on 
uh, or football creditors being paid and uh, you know other other creditors getting 25% to to try to take away some of this so the price paid would have to cover those bills but uh, that that's the issue um and then finally that there was a story um in the mail and I think you and I yeah, we've we both discussed this before the show started is it looked quite uh, yeah, it, it looked quite disturbing that uh, Sheffield Sheffield United were uh, trying to avoid administration and, and they were making huge cutbacks. Uh, but as, as you rightly pointed out when we had the chat, uh, you know, sa- saving on painting the lines on the training pitches and you know ter- turning turning down the, the dial on the thermostat isn't going to give you enough money to uh, be the difference between going into administration and not going to administration. So, And the, the club's chief executive, uh, Sheffield United, initially said, we're not going to comment. And then uh, the chief executive decided he, he was going to comment. Um, and I think the word was bullshit, um, mm. uh, which he used uh, effectively. Uh, he he said, you know, if, if we if we were that desperate, we could have sold players in the January window. We chose not to. Uh, at the same time, Sheffield United do have some significant outstanding payments which are due to creditors, including other football clubs. So they're they're not in a great financial position. Um, they are in second place in the Championship. They are playing in the FA Cup quarterfinals. So on the pitch, they're doing really well. Um, their critics will say, "Well, part of the reason they're doing well is because they're, they're living beyond their means." But yeah, you know, that's that's a discussion for for people you know from various football sides. Um, but, but I do think this is indicative of the level of risk that exists in football, and that level of risk is at its greatest in the EFL Championship mm. because all of the clubs are losing money. Kieran, <clears throat> what have I told you before about letting the magic out? by revealing that you and I speak together outside the podcast. People listening to this don't want to hear that we have a relationship. And also that sounds dangerously like I'm asking you some research questions before we start doing the pod, and that would be terribly out of character. I, I generally don't know. There's two things, just very briefly. The, it, it's disturbing to hear Wigan admitting that wages have still not been paid, mm. as that's a, an ongoing uh, issue we've been discussing for a while. And secondly, I generally that mail on Sunday story is so bizarre because, as you said, there's this whole list of things uh, cutting back on fertilizer, mm, um, yeah. the undersoil heating at the training ground, um, halving the use of data analysis software. Not, none of which is explained in the article how that's going to help. What mm. they call extraordinary cost-cutting measures, and that, I mean, far be it for me to suggest that journalists are can have an irresponsible strain to them, Kieran. God forbid. I certainly wouldn't suggest that on Talk Sport, but I, 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 <laughs> I, thought, that was a, I thought that article was very irresponsible. Um, trivia fans, of course, before we move on to questions, uh, you mentioned the coming storm, and trivia fans will be pleased to know that that is the name of the theme tune for Mastermind. Ah, there you go. That There's is, a bit of, ad, bit of yeah. added value. For, mm. which will, this will be the one that BAFTA's not listening to. <laughs> if they are listening, they'll be going, hang on a second, it's meant to be a questions pod. It's 15 minutes in. We haven't had any questions yet, except about whether the doorbell is going to ring and the dog's going to bark. Um, our first question comes from Dan Robinson. 
And Dan says, I'd be very grateful if you could answer my question regarding building a new stand and how that relates to FFP. I understand that the capital costs of the new stand do not count towards FFP calculations. However, does the loss of revenue incurred by the temporary closure of the previous stand count towards that cost? Or does the reduced revenue have an impact on the FFP calculation as well? Right. It's a it's a very uh, fair question, Dan. You, you're absolutely right that if a club invests in infrastructure costs, um, either by moving to a new ground or expanding a new stadium, what will happen is that the, the depreciation, depreciation on stadiums is exactly the same as amortisation on players. You say, well, yeah, we think the stadium will last us 50 years. It's cost us 50 million quid. So therefore, there's a cost of a million a year. Um, and that is always allowed uh, for FFP. And, and I think that's that's to be encouraged because uh, if it results in improved facilities for both staff, players, and fans, then then everybody wins. Um, in in respect of the impact during the building process, um, I, I believe it's dealt with on a case by case basis. I, I think uh, clubs would be able to put in to say, um, yeah, under normal circumstances, we'd expect to make. You know, three million pounds a year from the East Stand or whatever it's going to be called. We're unable to do so. We're improving facilities for fans. Will you therefore give us an extra three million pounds? And and that I, I suspect will be looked upon sympathetically by the people making the decision. Um, it can actually go the other way. When when we look at, at the case of Spurs and uh, their move from White Hart Lane to White Hart Lane, um, <laughs> but but a bigger White Hart Lane, and, and, I'm, and I'm going to call it White Hart Lane because yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is um, yeah. But they, of course, went to Wembley for a couple of seasons, and uh, the original White Hart Lane had a capacity of thirty five thousand. They moved to Wembley, and they actually saw their their match day income significantly increase. So it can work in in the in the favour of the club, depending upon what is is happened. So um, it, it will be done on a case by case basis, but. The football authorities, they, they're not there trying to catch clubs out. They're not there trying to discourage what we would take the view as being behaviour, which is good for the game, good for the fans, good good for, you know, for, for the local community as well because there'll be more jobs and so on. Um, so as far as I, I, I would consider, it, it would dealt on a, on a case-by-case basis, sympathetically. Remember, many clubs are not near the FFP limit, so therefore it becomes a, you know, a question which, which doesn't doesn't actually impact the, upon the individual club. And certainly in the case of Spurs, you know, Spurs, um, the most profitable club in the history of the Premier League. So mm. uh, Mr. Conte didn't mention that in his rant yesterday, did he? Yeah, I, I suspect that one of our lead stories on Thursday may be about how much it's going to cost Spurs to get rid of. <laughs> he may as well have been holding up a caption saying, just please, just sack me now. Just, <laughs> I, and you, you know there's a, a very amusing, uh, um, I don't think they call it a meme, but you know, every now and again somebody will, will put that, the Hitler's rant from the film Downfall up. Yes. With yes. I suspect that for the next couple of weeks, it's going to be replaced by Antonio Conte's rant yesterday, which is just, I, I'll tell you what, that boy does baffled and angry well. He's, he's, <laughs> he's got a career in acting. He's, he's got the, he, he's more baffled and angry than a teenage boy, isn't he? He's fantastic. <laughs> um, our next question comes from Matthew Palashok. Um, apologies, Matthew, if I've not pronounced your name uh, correctly. And Matthew says, my football team, Shrewsbury Town, Shrewsbury Town, seemed to have a huge turnover of staff behind the scenes last summer. However, all the salaries were listed as competitive. Is this a consistent theme across football? 
Um, so, sometimes when uh, one new person comes in, they, they want to reinvent a team. Uh, football clubs, in my experience, behind the scenes – don't tend to have high staff turnovers um, unless there is a, a a change at the very top. So in, in the case of uh, Manchester United, for example, when Ed Woodward left and he was replaced by Richard Arnold, there's been quite a um, there's been quite a significant and also very expensive uh, movement of senior staff members as a result of that. Um, for a a team such as Shrewsbury, I think a lot would depend upon how you define high high staff turnover. Uh, but in my experience, talking to people in the industry, sort of working back office, um, they describe their salaries as okay uh, or low-ish, but not not appalling. Um, and part of the reason for this is uh, supply is greater than demand because. Um, how many people have always wanted since the age of seven to go and work for the local uh, the local builders merchants the the local bakery the the local automotive uh, parts uh, factory whereas I, I get contacted at least once or twice a week by people saying can you advise me on how to get a career in football finance? Um, you know, I love football. I love my team. I've always wanted to do this. So, you know, I'm involved in the financial world. And, and, and my standard reply is I, I would just, first of all, take a step back. Football clubs are not interested in fanboys working for them. They are, they are interested in the, the best HR people, the best legal team, the best marketing people, the best financial team, and so on. So I always try to say just you need to you need to roll back on the fact that um you think that your your club's wonderful and also you are there purely to do a particular role as far as the football club is concerned and that that's right and proper yet if 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 you've just got a job in liverpool the chances of jürgen klopp wandering past you in in the canteen and and you just sort of you you sort of you say hey Jurgen have you ever thought of playing an inverted fullback or moving Trent to the right the, you know, to the as left back instead of right back or whatever it's going to be and the chances of that conversation ever taking place are somewhere between slim and none um, and slim's out of town so <laughs> you know it's it's simply not going to happen, um, and I've got I've got family who work for football clubs. I've got uh, I've got I've got dodgy Pete Brooks, one of my uh, best friends. He's he's involved at, at a club, um, and so on. And, and you know people who work in football as well. You are there as as a support activity for the main focus, which is of course the, the yeah the progress of the first team. Um, so because supply is greater than demand. Uh, football clubs don't have to make big offers unless it's for a very, very niche role which has been identified. Um, if, if we take a look at chief executives' pay, um, you know, many of them are now on. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd say sort of you know two million is is probably the going rate for a chief executive in in the Premier League uh, for for many clubs. But uh, once you go below that level, the, the the level of remuneration does fall considerably and you might say well you know two million pounds that's a hell of a lot of money and you say well hold on just you know, how, how many chief executives do you know are probably the you know the 30th highest paid person at, at the organization they work for because all of the players will be on on more money 
Um, so it's it's a very strange industry, football, when it when it comes to employment. And of course, you've got many people there who will put up with, for want of a better word, they'll put up with crap from their bosses because I've supported this club since I was seven years old, mm. and I still want to do what's what I consider to be best for the club. So it's it's a fun funny environment. Uh, yeah, if Roy Hodgson's reappointed at Palace, there's going to be a couple of niche roles. <laughs> holding the manager's blanket, for example, would be a new permanent job. Did you say your mate was called Dodgy Pete? Dodgy Pete Brooks, yeah. Dodgy, and he's, yeah, he's still got a job. Did he, and he put that name down on his CV. And I'll tell you, what, get this bloke Dodgy Pete in. Um, I, Kieran, what you, something you said there is uh, absolute proof that you and I live in different worlds because in my friend's group, all the seven-year-olds I know, their ambition is to be a spaceman or to play <laughs> f- football. None, I don't know any seven-year-old whose ambition is to work in the accounts department at Sutton United. It's, <laughs> um, our next question, Kieran, comes from Andrew Leggett, and it's on an aspect of Australian football of which I wasn't aware. And Andrew Leggett says, my question is on solidarity payments. I remember a few years ago there was a story that an extinct Australian NSL club, Carlton FC, was still earning solidarity payments when players like Marco Bresciano and Vince Grilla would be sold. The former owner was apparently pocketing percentages for years after the club went under. Is there anything stopping an unscrupulous individual buying clubs about to go under, do nothing, and then pocket those solidarity payments? No, uh, do nothing, one of my favourite tracks by the specials, of course. Indeed. Um, uh, For those people who are unfamiliar uh, with solidarity payments. And, and I'm going to do something unusual. I'm, I'm going to praise FIFA twice in the same show. Whoa, um, not, <laughs> exactly. not on my watch, brother. <laughs> um, to be, to be, uh, this, is, this is a rule introduced by, by FIFA. The concept of solidarity payments is that for those clubs that uh, had a young child – uh, between the ages of twelve uh, right. and sixteen, and also up to the age of twenty-one. So, so for, for a a club that has been associated with a player between the ages of twelve to twenty-one, five percent of the transfer fee. Um, where if that player is transferred by their twenty-third birthday, and the rules are seem to be quite specific, if if the player is transferred by the twenty-third birthday, five percent of the fee is then redistributed to the development clubs. So therefore, in, in the case of what Andrew was referring to, if um, if, if his Australian team had uh, had players during that age, the club goes bust, but they still were involved in the development, then FIFA would have allocated some of these funds um, to, to the club. So in, in, if there was somebody uh, unscrupulous, uh, yes, they could take advantage of this. Um, and the... The concept of sort of sell-on fees and development fees and solidarity payments is, is quite critical. Um, we, we know that Birmingham City, for example, ha- have been up for sale uh, for some time. And um, uh, there's been a number of people. Remember, we, we saw the, the issues with Maxi Lopez. Um, Lawrence Bassini has uh, has promised to come on the show uh, when his uh, and his uh, uh, bid for Birmingham City is is successful uh, has has been has gone through, uh, which was uh, which which should be interesting, I'm sure. Um, but one of the issues with Birmingham City, as far as the sellers are concerned, is should Jude Bellingham be sold by by Dortmund to 
whoever it's going to be. You know, there's talk of Liverpool, Manchester United, Real Madrid. You know, Jude Bellingham. Uh, he's, he's still only nineteen, but uh, or nineteen twenty. Uh, but if he is sold, then there will be a big fee going to to Birmingham City. Now, who's going to pocket that fee? I think the existing owners, they want to try to ring fence that for themselves, whereas prospective new owners say, look, you know, we, we, we take on the risk when we buy the club and, and therefore it should come to us. And, and that's part of the reason, part of the many reasons, it has to be said, um, why Birmingham City's ownership uh, issues have not yet been resolved. Um, but it, going back to, to Andrew's position, um, yes, an, an unscrupulous owner, but you'd, you'd have to be fairly confident um, that that player is going to be transferred by their 23rd birthday. And, and sometimes a selling club um, might delay the sale of a player until they're 23, because that way they, they don't have to, tra- to, to pass over the 5% to FIFA. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Andrew, thank you for that question. It, it's a sort. Of, I, I learn a lot. Generally, learn a lot from this uh, pod, Kieran. The problem is that I forget. Uh, hello, there's that, there's that Finn again. I've heard. I've, I could take a lot from Kevin Day, but I'm not. I'm not sitting here and listening to him saying I've learned a lot from this pod. Finley, come back. I was about to say I, I forget most of it, which is why I find each pod. Uh, just as interesting, but I assumed Andrew's question was about a specific Australian um, uh, football policy. But learning that it's a, a FIFA policy, but again, unfortunately, that's the trouble with FIFA. It starts off as a good story from them, but ends up as them not spotting a huge loophole that is being exploited by unscrupulous owners. Uh, our next question, Kieran, comes from Daniel Nicholson, and it, interestingly, we spoke to Mark Ives, the general manager of the National League, last week in an interview that um, 
uh, caused a few ripples, mainly mainly good. Yes. Um, yeah, I thought Mark was excellent. He was very good, I thought, and, and seems like a very nice uh, chap. But one of the issues was the controversy around playing the playoff final for the National League in London, at the, at, at the London Stadium rather than Wembley, and whether it should be at Wembley in the first place, full stop, when many of the teams are based in the north. Um, and Daniel Nicholson has a similar question, which I know will predate Mark Ives last week because of the length of our waiting list, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but Daniel says, with several dozen English and Welsh stadiums larger than the King Power, it seems nonsensical that in the absence of Wembley being available, it was selected to host this year's Community Shield. Did the FA exhaust the other larger options, or was it a simple re- disregard for the tens of thousands of fans that would like to have attended the game? So what was the process behind picking the stadium? I would have thought it would be a more attractive revenue generator for both the host and FA to play at Old Trafford or St James's Park or the Emirates, maybe even Twickenham, or a nostalgic return to the Millennium Stadium. So why the King Power at Leicester? Right. Um, and again, I think this is, this is a cracking question. It's a fair question. Hmm. Um, as you dig a little bit deeper, um, we still have a bit of a, um, a hangover from COVID. So Wembley was effectively ruled out um, due to Westlife and Coldplay, oh, okay. um, which, which personally I would have crawled over broken glass to ensure that the Community Shield did take place because that was doing a greater service to society. Well, yeah, um, to, to be fair, Kieran, there are a lot of Coldplay fans who probably wouldn't have enjoyed seeing Killing Joke last week at the Albert Hall. So <laughs> that's true. We're all about the we're all about the balance on this show, Kieran. <laughs> um, but in, in respect of getting access to a stadium, there, there are um, there are a number of things which have to take place. First of all, uh, many stadiums are used for alternative uses. Um, Especially during that period of year. Secondly, um, you know, we we have spoken to the groundsman at Leicester City, we have. who 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 I learned more in thirty minutes about grass yeah. than I had in the rest of my life. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the groundsmen are are very defensive about uh, their 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 patch being used um, without them being consulted. Um, so, so that that would have been another consideration because there would have been going through the effectively the, the final preparation process for for getting the season uh, right as far as the pitch is concerned. Um, I, the reason why I suspect it wouldn't have been able to take place here at, at Old Trafford is because that's in Manchester. So, you know, to have to have uh, Manchester City okay, yeah, t- yeah, playing yeah, a, yeah. A, a match of this stature in Manchester, that's, and similar, I think, for Goodison. Yeah. So, you know, that would rule out, you know, those, those two cities. Um, you've got some other clubs who are having their final sort of friendly of the season on home soil um, and so on. And, and as you go through, it, it actually probably came to pass that, that Leicester was um, – was was the best alternative um some some stadiums which are in uh perhaps who've got slightly larger capacity that's great if 90% of the fans support one club and 10% the other because for from policing and segregation issues 
So you you have to consider all of the, the you'd have to get approval from the local authorities. You'd have to speak to the local uh, chief constable to make sure that you know is there access to get you know let's say forty to fifty thousand people in from various parts of the country and separate them both going in and coming out um, and getting approval on all of these ducks lined up in a row is quite challenging so uh, I can understand the disappointment from those fans that didn't get to see the community shield because of the capacity issues but uh, in defense of the football association and I think the football association are coming on the show soon yes um, so perhaps it's one of the questions which which we can ask them um, they they do go through a process and you know they want to showcase the the the, the sport as much as they can to as wide an audience so it, it wouldn't have because wouldn't be, oh, let, let's they didn't go and just stick a pin in a donkey and then up came Leicester I used, to, I used to love the Charity Shield as it was then when I was growing up because it meant it was finally back. Yes. You had that long interminable summer when the football pools had Australian. Oh, pool. yeah. And then suddenly there was a magic moment early in August when they had English friendlies and then we had the Charity Shield. It is one of those games though, Kieran, um, that a lot of fans, particularly fans of clubs that are not likely to play in it, um, predict that this will be in future the the mythical, the magical 39th game, that this is the game the FA may indeed choose to play mm. in Southeast Asia, for example, um, as a as a big money spinner, which, um, I mean, it would annoy the fans of the teams that are in the Community Shield, but it, it, it would make sense for the, the probably the least important game of the season for that to be the game that was played as a showcase but abroad, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I agree with you entirely. But what I'd also have to say, and, and I've, I've been reading quite a few articles this week about the expansion of of the Premier League, um, and uh, you know, we say, well, you know, I I want to see Brighton's home matches at the Amex, and you want to see Palace's home matches at Selhurst. Um, but what about our international fan bases? Now, I appreciate, in respect to, you know, we we both know where we are in the pecking order of football. They're not going to be huge, but Liverpool, Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea, City. These clubs do have fan bases elsewhere. And uh, my gut reaction is that I, I think I'm more important than a fan of my club that's based in, in New York. But is, isn't that a slight degree of arrogance from, from my behalf? And should, therefore, a match of this stature, uh, should it be allowed to take place in, in the Middle East or in the States or so on? You know, who, who actually is losing? Because... At the end of the season, how many fans are going to go and say, yeah, the well, highlight of my season was going to the Community Shield match? Because, because let's face it, if that is the highlight of your season, it's been a pretty crap season. <laughs> oh, that would have been a highlight. Um, <laughs> if uh, I like the idea of expanding the Premier League. If we could expand it to 24 teams before the end of this season, I'd be very grateful. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I don't know about Brighton's international fan base. Uh, roughly 50% of our international fan base is a very nice family who live just outside Oslo, um, plus my mate Mikko, who's the gloomiest bloke in Finland, which takes some doing, <laughs> <laughs> and and Akosh in Hungary, who's delightful. Ah, oh, Mikko's—we all love him to bits, but he's—he is. He, he, Ibsen would be saying to Mikko, "Mate, lighten up, please. Just, a, just, a, just a little smile won't hurt you." Tom Hall has our next question. Sorry, Mikko, love you. Tom Hall has our next question. Tom says, uh, "By law, companies in the UK." 
are required to auto-enrol all employees into a pension scheme and contribute a minimum of 3%, although many companies contribute more. My question is, what percentage do football clubs contribute or do they all contribute different amounts as this may have an effect on a player's decision when choosing which club he signs for. Also, if a club was loaning a player out and wanted 100% of his wage paid, would they want 100% plus his his pension contribution? Interesting one. Yes, yeah. Um, In in respect of of pensions and uh, footballers, the PFA have their own pension scheme and every person who is a member of the PFA in both the Premier League and the EFL, um, they get £6,420 a year paid into their pension. And this comes from, uh, and this is something which I've only just found out, this comes as part of the transfer levy which goes to the PFA. So, uh, yeah, there are are little bits which are are adopted off. Football clubs themselves do have pension schemes. I think there is a sort of this, there's an old football league pension scheme. There's two types of pension scheme. There's something called a defined contribution scheme, which is you put money into the pension scheme, that pension is is invested on your behalf, and however much it's worth when you retire, that's the pension you get. Um, and then there is uh, a, a defined benefit scheme, sometimes known as a final salary scheme, which says for every year you've worked for us you get you know 1% 1.5% of your final salary so it, it does it does vary um clubs are do have to go and follow the rules but i think there are sp- specific issues in relation to football players and the retirement age for footballers from when they can first um uh, draw down their pension and i know we 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 did ask answer this a few weeks ago it used to be 35 but then that was changed i think it was in 2006 to 55 mm. and it was just been changed i think about a year ago to footballers can now not draw their pensions until they're 57 so so there there are a lot of complications in in respect of pensions, but clubs do have to adhere to, to legislation. Most players will have a private pension. Um, most players will be uh, have, having kissing kissing their photographs of Jeremy Hunt after the election okay. on on Wednesday. So not the election after the, the budget on because that will increase the amount of money that they pay into their pension pot, um, and and they will benefit from that, um, which I don't think was the purpose of his scheme. Yeah. Um, but it, but uh, perhaps he perhaps he forgot to mention it. Uh, why do some clubs contribute more than the minimum uh, pension, Kieran? Is it to make them more attractive to higher level uh, recruits? It, well, it, it won't it won't have an impact upon players because. Um, there's there's normally some form of pension cap in, in terms uh, of right. contributions. Right. It, it's actually um, it, it's those clubs who are, who are trying to be a bit more progressive and want to offer. Uh, and, and this goes back to to the earlier question that, that we had from from Matthew um, in respect of uh, it's part of your benefits and and and. You know, we we are now in a world where you, you look at the whole package which is offered by an employer, which includes you know it, the, the state of the pension scheme, because uh, it, it's something that yeah. But both you and I, let's face it, yeah, we are starting to look over our shoulders I, I, uh, at uh, at father time creeping up on us, and, and therefore a pension becomes increasingly important. I, I, we're not looking over our shoulders anymore. It's like wacky races. Father Time is suddenly ahead of us now. <laughs> a couple of years ago, we were a lap, we were a lap, we were a laps in front, and now he's, he's in front of us, waving his side from the back of his wacky car. Our next question comes from Tom, 
Now, uh, everybody, you know my feelings in general about questions coming from just a first name, but I'll wave this one through. Uh, Tom says, I, a lot is often made these days about England international players donating their match fees to charity. I'd like to know, however, what kind of fee they get per match, and do some players get more than others, and does it depend on the importance of the match? Um, right. My understanding is that it is a standard fee. Uh, it does not vary per player. It's uh, approximately £2,000 per match per player, and that applies to both the men and the women. Um, and I, th- I think that is appropriate because they are both representing their country, and ultimately that's what we're paying for. Uh, that, that's you know that that's surely the pinnacle. Um, Tom's absolutely right in the sense that the the England male players uh, certainly do, denote their fees. I'm, I'm I'm not certain of the position um, in the women's game, um, but uh, the, the women's game is significantly different. Uh, you know the the average salary uh, for somebody playing in the WSL is is probably around about thirty k a year. Yeah, um, substantially different to to that of the men's team. Um, so. There, there are no tournament adjustments uh, in respect of the match fee itself. But uh, remember, the England players, when they go to a World Cup or when they go to a tournament, they actually make far more money from the commercial and, and intellectual property issues of being a player than they, they do from the fees from the Football Association itself. Mm. I'm glad you say that's your understanding, Kieran, because I know from research on a different project that national FAs across Europe and the world are very, very coy about revealing how much their players get through mm, individual mm. games. Um, I, I, I believe that Scotland don't uh, – well, it's certainly the last figures are available. Scotland didn't uh, play their internationals, pay their internationals match fees because they thought it was a privilege to, to play for the country. Whether that's changed or not, I don't know. Um, Brazil is it seems play enormous amounts of money to mm. their to their players because most of them are in money raising friendlies. But it's um I can understand why the, the FAs would be coy, Kieran, but it's it's a very difficult thing to get information almost as difficult as getting information out of the PGMOL about how much referees and assistant referees are paid. Our next question, Kieran, comes from Richard. Now, I believe I said a, <laughs> I believe I said a question ago that I'm not happy about one-name questions. I'm particularly not happy about Tom Richard. If the next question is from Harry, I'm going to be having words with producer guy because it sounds to me like someone's having a joke. Well, we've got questions from Tom, Dick, and Harry. Um, but Richard says, it looks like Frankie de Jong renegotiated his Barcelona contract in the summer by altering it for deferred wages via pay increases which has created the current situation where if he leaves and the contract is terminated and he doesn't get that higher salary in the later years, should his agent have negotiated a separate contract with a pay structure that was more like a bond or loan where the money would be paid back every year for a set number of years starting at a certain date, a bit like the infamous Bobby Benilla contract? Well, I think we've got to start with the infamous Bobby Benilla contract. And people not familiar for this. Yeah, me. Um, Bobby DeMilla. Bobby Benilla, he played for the New York Mets. Right. Um, and uh, he was he had a contract which was worth $5.9 million wow. in the year 2000. A lot of money. Uh, you know, you know, a lot of money today, a lot of money then. And uh, the New York Mets bought him out 
of the contract. And what they said is that we're not going to pay you £5.9 million in the year 2000. Instead, we will pay you £1.1 million a year, so $1.1 million a year, starting in 2011. So you're going to get nothing for 11 years. But we're then going to pay you this £1.1 million for 25 years. So he's going to end up with around about $26 million for a contract which was only costing them $5.9 million, yeah, saving them $5.9 million at the time. And the reason for this is that somebody had told the New York Mets, if you give us that $5.9 million, we have a scheme which will make you rich beyond your wildest dreams. And you'll make so much money that you'll be able to not only afford to pay Bobby Binilla $1.1 million a year, but New York Mets themselves will be in the money. It was, of course... A Ponzi scheme. It was, of course, a right load of old cobblers, and and the club have uh, have suffered as a result. So, so that's that's sort of the history um, of where we are um, in respect of of Frankie De Jong. Now, let's face it. Yeah, this is a private contract between two two parties yeah. to which uh, to which we've got no no right to know the details. Um, I, I would be uh, I would be staggered if uh, he did not get some form of recompense um, uh, in respect of his pay deferral. Should he be um, should he be sold? And also, um, I, th- I think this is, is a, sort of a, a sort of way of saying Frankie de Jong doesn't want to move from Barcelona. Yeah. He, he likes it there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lovely city. He's well paid. And if he knows that for the next three years he's going to get enhanced pay, that probably just simply means that Unless somebody, unless somebody from the buying club says, "Well, we're going to make up for all of the wages you've lost out on," he's probably going to stay put. Um, yeah, you know, he's playing for a club that's top of La Liga. Um, he's he enjoys the lifestyle there. He, he he's had the opportunity to move uh, over the last twelve months and has chosen not to do so. So um, it's it's more not more nuanced than you know. Perhaps we we, we initially realised. Um, could I mean going back to to Richard's question? I, I suspect his agent has looked after uh, Frankie's interests in one way, shape, or form. That his client is not going to be disadvantaged, mm. regardless of whether he stays or leaves. That's a good question for Richard. And again, I've learned a lot as I didn't know about that Bobby Benilla contract. And it it does seem like the chap who sold the monorail to Springfield. Uh, it's been quite busy in American sport in the last 20 years. I suppose the only issue for Frankie de Jong and his agent, Kieran, would be that with Barcelona's finances being notoriously volatile at the moment, that you, you can't really trust that they'll still be able to pay him that level of money in two, three seasons' time anyway, could you? Yes, that could be the case, although uh, knowing Barcelona's ability to uh, create new Economic levers. Um, there's always something. If it's not nailed down, they they will sell it. Um, now, I, I was on a panel with somebody from La Liga a couple of weeks ago, um, and I said, "Yeah, what's, what's the score with this?" Is yeah, yeah, it's not great, is it? Um, and and what they are now doing is that they are they are going to prevent clubs from selling off more than five percent of individual income streams to oh. because it's otherwise it's putting the whole you know, if, if I was to say um, I'm going to give somebody 50% of my salary for the next 10 years in exchange for you know, so much money now, 
that re- that is a payday loan, and it yeah. really those yeah, yeah. type of activities should not be encouraged. It's uh, you know there's there's a lot of romantic reasons for liking the the member owned club scheme that we have in both Real Madrid and and Barcelona and so on. The downside of that is that if you want to be president. Uh, you've got to persuade the members to vote for you. How do you persuade people to vote for you? It's by telling them what they want to hear rather than what's necessary, what, what could be deemed to be what they should be hearing um, because we live in a populist world. And that's the case at Barcelona. Yes, we're still going to sign all of these players. Yes, vote for me and player X, Y, and Z will come to the club and, and the voters say yes. And and the voters, and rightly so, you know, if I'm, if I'm a member of a football club, what I, what I care about is seeing my team win. Mm. I'm, I'm, and we all sort of got that attitude of uh, actually, from a financial point of view, some of these decisions are absolutely appalling. But hey, yeah, we, we, we've got we've got a new player coming in to be our number our number eleven this season on a seventy million pound contract signed from such a club. Let's go for it, mm. and, and we'll and we'll worry about the finances next year. Yeah, well, I just, that's an attitude I applaud, Kieran, because it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's you know keep keep. Putting it off. Um, I don't know what the Catalan is for pulling rabbits out of hats, but they do they do it quite well. Our penultimate question, Kieran, comes from Adam Naylor. Uh, and Adam prefaces it by saying, I'm a long-suffering Derby County fan, which has led me, unsurprisingly, to the price of football. You may have covered this in the previous episode, but I see a lot of shares being issued by football clubs in the millions or billions to generate revenue. What is the purpose behind this? Is it the latest FFP dodge that we've seen with other clubs around selling stadiums and, dare I say, amortisation? I'm interested to understand this in more detail, in if possible. Adam, we covered it not only in a previous episode, but the previous episode. Um, but the reason I'm happy to ask Kieran this question again is because we talked with that news story about Newcastle selling one share and one mm. share alone, which generated £57 million, I think, wasn't it? For the That's voice? right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we did mention in passing uh, Max Rushton, who I spoke to at TalkSport yesterday, his club, Cambridge City, issuing many more shares than that. So I, I think if we concentrate specifically on Adam's questions about those clubs that uh, issue millions, I mean, Lincoln City, for example, are a club that do this on a regular basis, yep. it? Uh, issue shares to raise money. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear... Uh, your answer as to what the, the financial logic is behind this. Okay, um, let's go to, back to square one. The vast majority of football clubs are losing money on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So therefore, you've got to say, if we are losing money, what can we do to plug the gap? Now, you can sell players, but if you're a League One club, you're probably not going to get yeah, unless you've got a fantastic production line, you're not going to get a lot of money. And uh, the other issue when it comes to selling players is that it's it's a very erratic way of generating additional funds. So if, if we take a look at Aston Villa, for example, in the summer of um, summer of twenty one, uh, yeah, summer of twenty one, they sold Jack Grealish to Manchester City and they generated a hundred million pounds. The previous season, they'd sold very little. And um, therefore, it, it it does cause sort of peaks and troughs as far as as funds are concerned. Um, you can sell other assets. Uh, you know, um, Adam said that he he's a Derby County fan. Well, he will be aware that uh, the other you know, club had sold the stadium, but you can only do that once. Although, give give 
give some club owners a chance, and they'll they'll probably try to do it more than once. Um, you can borrow money, but if you borrow money, that money has to be repaid. So, you know, and also borrowed money doesn't doesn't contribute towards financial fair play. So, the fourth means of generating funds, uh, and, and I use this word funds deliberately, is um, that under the Premier League rules, the first £90 million worth of funds from share issues counts towards FFP. And in the EFL, the first £24 million counts towards financial fair play over a rolling three-year period. Um and, and therefore, that's why we are seeing clubs do this. First of all, it gives the clubs cash, and that cash can be used to pay for transfers, pay for wages, pay for overheads. Secondly, under the present system, an element of the funds from those share issues contributes towards your financial fair play uh, calculations, and therefore, if you keeps you within the limits, you don't you're not subject to investigations, charges, potential points deductions, and so on. The owners of some clubs say, "Well, this is this is crazy." You know, we, we've got owners who are ridiculously wealthy. Why can't they put in as much money as they want? And certainly, this this is the case, which is often put forward by the fans of Stoke City. Mm. Um, you know, with with their with their relationship with the Coates family and Bet Three Six Five. The reason for this is simply this: this is what clubs voted for um, at both the EFL level and the Premier League level. The, the owners of clubs said, we are going to set a limit. Uh, and if you get you know, in the Premier League, you've got to have 14 clubs. I think in, I think in the championship, it's two thirds of the club. So you need, you need 16 clubs to vote to change the rules. Um, so when, when we look at these particular rules and see, we're saying, you know, why are these strange numbers? It's because club owners or chief executives on, on behalf of club owners have gone to meetings and said, well, this is what we consider to be appropriate. We don't want a club such as Stoke City to be able to buy their way mm. out of the championship. At the same time, we do want the flexibility of having an element or a, a what, what they consider to be a fair amount. Now, What's one person's fair is another person's unfair because we've all got perceptions as to what we consider to be an appropriate level of funding. But but that, that Adam, is, is the reason why. Share, share issues are, are quite good in the sense that shares never have to be repaid and shares are under no obligation to pay dividends. So it does protect the club. It does give the club additional funds, which would allow it to to, to pay the bills and, and you know, to keep the lights on. And, and, and that's one of the, the critical issues involved in football clubs, sort of going back to effectively what we were talking about at the start of the show um, and, and this, this, this genuine concern that too many decisions uh, – in the championship in particular, are, are determined by off-the-field matters um, rather than what's happening on the pitch. Well, going back to the start of the show then, Kieran, um, with the Mail on Sunday claiming that Sheffield United are turning off light switches left, right and centre like they're an angry parent of teenagers and are cutting back on fertiliser, what's to stop Sheffield United just issuing more shares to raise the money that they need? Well, you, you have to ask yourself who is going to buy the shares. Ah, okay, and right. um, if, if we take a look at the position of Sheffield United, there is nothing for, you know, from a cash flow point of view. There's nothing to stop the football club issuing shares to the current owner, but that's assuming that the current owner has the cash ah, to pay for the shares. Okay, right. right. And we, we've then got our friend Dozy. 
the, yeah. the, the Nigerian businessman who uh, apparently is is looking to acquire the club. So again, from a from an existing owner's point of view, why put five million pounds into Sheffield United now? If I'm going, if I'm in the process of selling the, the club, and I'm not going to get an additional five yeah, yeah, million pounds from the prospective owner, right? Our final question, Kieran, comes from Mike McLean, and it's a sort of question that I absolutely love—a very simple question, but one that should have occurred to me long before now. And Mike McLean says, with the current sanctions over Russia, how are football teams dealing with payments owed to Russian clubs? For example, West Ham purchased Nikola Vlasic for £27 million from CSKA Moscow. Assuming they still owe instalments on that transfer, what will they do? Do Or do they just end up getting a bargain purchase price? Right. What happens here is football clubs have to follow the the guidelines and, in fact, the rules which have been set by UK government. And those rules prevent cash flowing to Russian organisations unless for approved circumstances. And the football industry is not an approved industry. So, so we're fully aware that there is still some money going through to Russia for the, the purchase of um, you know, petroleum-based products and so on, but under very, very restricted circumstances. Um, so if you take a look at the the West Ham accounts for 2022, um, which I have done, um, <laughs> you, you will see on in, in Note 16, on page 27, there is specific reference to West Ham owing £7.8 million to clubs from Russia in respect of outstanding transfer instalments, but the club has not handed that money across and will not be in a position to do so unless it is given approval by the UK government. So the money's not sitting in an escrow account from what I can make out. The money is effectively sitting in in West Ham's bank account um, and uh, we will have to wait for uh, Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine Mm. to cease and then for uh, diplomatic issues to start to move forwards before that money will be paid across by West Ham. Mm. And hopefully David Sullivan's got a large supply of those little Russian hats that he likes to wear so often. (laughs) Because he'll have trouble sorting new ones. Um, (laughs) It's FA Cup day, Sunday. Shouldn't be saying that. The fact that you say it's FA Cup day, Sunday, annoys me. Through the most gritted of teeth, I wish every club, every club, Good luck in their <laughs> final games today. In the meantime, if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to our pod and join those many people who are already doing so, which is very kind of them, then please go to patreon.com slash price of football. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at price And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thanks to everybody from Patreon for supporting the show. It's, it's very kind, very generous of you, and, and, and we hope you're enjoying what you hear um, and for everybody else that holds us to account um, and also the, the, the nice things that you, that you say uh, we, we genuinely appreciate it there's another way in which you can support the show and that's to that's to go on to your app and uh, that's to uh, give us a review because the more reviews helps us with algorithms according to producer guy yeah we're, we're trying to book people on the show yeah we've just said uh, we just said mark from from the national league we're hoping to get somebody from the football association we're hoping to get somebody from the spfl as well and we are in ongoing talks with the efl for an ask the efl show and and you know who you are at the efl come on you you desperately want to come on the price of football <laughs> we're, we're we're cuddly and friendly you know that um, it doesn't matter what you write 
Um, you can you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Mikko the Gloomy Finn <laughs> and Captain Black from Captain Scarlet. That that'd be a fairly gruff show. Oh, I would expect. He was. I'll tell you what, though, as a, as a six year old, there was something about Captain Black. He was a good looking fellow, wasn't he? Captain Black. Yes, it reminds me of Arteta. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though, Mikko would do his research. He really would do his research. Oh, very good. Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. Bye, son, for the